Once you get to Ephesians chapter 1, stand with me. We're just going to look at verses 3 through 6 today. And uh, Wednesday night was our introduction study. And uh, this Wednesday as well, we'll do part 2 to an introduction to Ephesians. And we'll kind of chip away at the chapter, both ends, uh, there Sunday and Wednesday night. And uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. So Lord, as we come to this text There's a lot there, and so I pray that your spirit would speak through this simple-minded man and just bring bring the relevant word to Prineville, Oregon. And Lord, as I am writing on the backs of so many great men who have tried to help me understand this, Lord, I pray that uh, we wouldn't trust in man, but we would rest in your word. And we would let the main things be the plain things, and the plain things be the main things. And Lord, that your glorious grace would be praised as we walk out those doors today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, a Scottish man who was moving on to be the president of Princeton wrote of his encounter with the book of Ephesians that He had been quickened. He says, I was really alive. Jesus Christ became my center, the center of everything. And he wrote of the energizing power of God in his life who'd used the book of Ephesians to help him understand who Jesus was and what he had done for his life. Not in a general term, but in a very real personal way. Ephesians shows us the glorious blessings that we as Christians have entered into by God's grace. They are bestowed on those who were once dead in trespasses and sins. And as we read verse 3, you'd think that he would actually start with chapter 2, where he writes in verse 1, you can just flip there, "...and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins." He goes on and on and on about what he's done in reconciling us to himself. And then you'd think, then he'd go into verse 3. But he doesn't. He hops right into it uh, after his introduction of verses 1 and 2. Now, I've been studying for a few weeks, uh, getting ready for chapter 3. As I prayed, I've been writing on the backs of giants. I'm going to quote a lot of men that have helped bring understanding to me of these texts. And uh, I was bailing hay about a month ago and uh, listening to Alistair Begg teach on this chapter. And he starts out his sermon. He says, it occurred to me as I came to this difficult yet biblical doctrine of election that it is important for us to be very, very clear about what it means for someone to come to saving faith in Jesus. He said, what is it that awakens a person to faith in Jesus Christ? How does someone become a believer? How does it happen with a child in Sunday school or someone in their middle school years or a student or even a person on their deathbed? What are the principles involved in this? And he takes a moment to state them, not expound on them, but be purposeful. And and, uh, I happen to have just gone over this twice in my studying and I felt it would be valuable for us today as well. How is it that we come to saving faith in these essential elements are what happens? First of all, 
as the truth of the gospel is presented to us in whatever form, the Holy Spirit convicts us of its truth. Now, if you can look back as a Christian before your Christian days, you remember the gospel explained to you many different times in many different ways, whether it was a Sunday school teacher, a book that was given to you to read, you were handed a Bible in prison, it was a radio program, someone on TBN, I have a friend that was saved watching the 700 Club, you know, just whatever it might have been. But as you listened or as you watched, perhaps in your testimony, you were never stirred. They were just words. It was boring. You were looking at the clock, waiting for NASCAR to start, get out of church so that you can go uh, eat at the buffet, whatever it might have been. But then one day, you have this testimony as a Christian, the truth of the gospel was presented to you, maybe for the 40th time, and the Holy Spirit convicted you of the truth. And so then secondly... As you recognize the truths of the good news of the gospel, the Holy Spirit then enabled you to apply these truths to yourself. All of a sudden, you're like, this isn't just useful information for my neighbor or for the community or something along those lines, mom and dad. This is for me. The Holy Spirit all of a sudden enables you to do what you'd never done before, to see the truth that's confronting you at that moment and have it applied to your life. Thirdly, having been convinced of these truths, mainly your sinful state and your desperate need for a savior, the Holy Spirit then makes clear to you the remedy for your sin in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He will always testify of Jesus. He will always lead you to Jesus, face to face with Christ. And in that encounter, you trusted Jesus. You trusted Jesus. You laid down all of your reasoning. You've laid down all of your, anything that you had to bring to the table and all of your arguments. And you just said, you're right. I trust in what you have to say. And so the result of that newfound Christian faith was not built on human wisdom or intellect, but in the power of God drawing you, convicting you, and enabling you to see him as he is and yourself as you are. Fifthly, the effective working of the Holy Spirit in your heart brought you to faith in Jesus, and that is entirely without reference to your own merit or works or deeds. That you could sing with the old hymn, I'm chosen not for good in me, and waken up from wrath to flee. The person feels themselves to be on the receiving end of the initiative of God. As we read in our text, it's actually later on in the chapter, verse 13, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Don't look at me, look down at your Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. You guys are looking at me like, no, I'm reading from this, you read from this. Verse 14, or rather, uh, verse 13, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so the very context of Ephesians 1, our salvation is attributed to the will of God, to the electing, choosing, predetermining purposes of God, entirely and yet we also have verse 13 immediately within the context our responsibility described you were ones who heard the word of truth you believed in him you were sealed with the spirit work of God Alistair Begg said God enables us to believe but God does not believe us 
for us. And so in all of our testimonies, and even in your story right now, even if you come here and you're not a believer, you need to know that you will not make your way to God based upon your own intellect, your own pursuit, your own reasoning, but because of his purposeful drawing of you, working in you, showing to you, revealing himself to you through the word of God. It's being preached right now, so watch out. And the living word of God, Jesus Christ. David Wells wrote, There is an invisible boundary between God and ourselves, both with his being and with respect to what we know. We cannot cross the boundary to know him savingly. He's not found in our deepest self. He's outside the range of our intuitive radar. We are in fact alienated from him and shut out from his fellowship and knowledge. We cannot access him on our own terms or in our own term, times. No, it is he who must cross the boundary if we are to know him. And this he has done in Christ. And so we see this in verses 3 through 14, which start out as praise for him crossing that boundary, for him doing that. And then on the Wednesday night, we're going to look at verse 15 through chapter 2, verse 10, a prayer to help us realize that. In the original Greek, the first 12 verses constitute one single complex sentence. I really wanted to like take out all the commas and periods and all that and just like see if we could do it, like read through it without, you know. I tried it before we came to church and it just doesn't happen in Prineville, I guess. But as Paul wrote this, his speech poured out of his mouth in what some referred to as a continuous cascade. He didn't pause for breath. He didn't punctuate when he wrote in the Greek. There was no punctuation. There were no stops. And so commentators have tried to explain what is happening in verses 3 through 14. And so they've given us some pictures. One man wrote, We enter this letter through a magnificent gateway. It is a golden chain with many links. It's a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors. And we only read three verses of it. William Hendrickson likens this chapter to a tumbling snowball going down a hill, picking up volume as it descends. E.K. Simpson, less joyfully perhaps, says this is like some long-winded racehorse careering onward at full speed. A little more romantic is John McKay's musical simile. This rhapsodic adoration is comparable to the overture of an opera which contains the successive melodies that are to follow. Marcy, can I get an amen? Amen! amen. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Marcy, everybody, praise God. Armitage Robinson said that it's like the preliminary flight of the eagle rising and wheeling round as though for a while uncertain what direction in his boundless freedom he shall take. So let's get into it with the eagle. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If you're looking to write a rap, this is a good place to start. Blessed, blessed, blessing. Word. Verse 3 is a big doxology. Theology always leads to doxology. This mighty symphony of salvation. And what is so striking with it is that it all begins with God. Other religions start with self. Self-realization, self-searching, self-fulfillment. 
But the Bible is the absolute reverse of that. God calls out for man. God takes initiative. God blesses us with every spiritual blessing. Blessed be God. Blessed is the Greek word eulogetos. It means to praise him and to speak well of him and to declare his greatness. His last week's last psalm, Psalm 72, we closed out book two of the Psalms. It says, men shall be blessed in him and all nations shall call him blessed. We are blessed, so blessed be his name. Which brings us to who has blessed us. Eulogio. He's acted kindly toward us with every spiritual blessing. Notice the end tenses of bless, which is eulogia. He's blessed us with all the whole bunch of every kind of the generous gifts that we could find in heaven. Charles Hodge put it, these blessings are spiritual, not merely because they pertain to the soul, but because derived from the Holy Spirit, whose presence and influence are the great blessing purchased by Christ. Look at the verbs. In verse 3, we have, he blessed us. In verse 4, he chose us. In verse 5, he predestined us. In verse 8, he lavished us. Look at the nouns. It's his will, his plan, his purpose, him. It is impossible to miss this. That it is from God and it is in the Messiah. If the source of the blessing is God, then the sphere of the blessing is in Christ Jesus. Verses 1 through 14, Jesus is mentioned either by name or by title. Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved, or by his pronoun, he, him, his, no fewer than 15 times in 14 verses. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And then the phrase in Christ or in him occurs 11 times in 14 verses. If we're not preaching Jesus as we go through the New Testament, we're crazy. We've missed it. And we are deceiving people. God the Father has blessed us in God the Son, Christ Jesus. Just as he promised to Abraham, I will bless you, make you the father of many nations. And in your seed, Jesus, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Some of the commentators have gone further and have detected in this paragraph a structure of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And then in verses 4 through 6, we have the Father electing. In verses 7 through 12, we have the Son redeeming. In verses 13 and 14, we have the Spirit sealing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each one of these stanzas ends with the phrase, to the praise of His glory. Be careful not to get self-centered as we're reading this. It doesn't end here. As wonderful as it is, it ends there, in worship of Him. And so as we just get in these verses, the blessings that God's blessed us in Christ Jesus are unfolded in three ways. We see them in our past, verse 4, and that they relate to before the foundations of the world, election. We see them in our present, what we have in Christ now, which is our adoption. And we see that in the future, verse 12, in the fullness of time, there will be unification in Christ Jesus. And so how do these past, present, future blessings become ours? These blessings with every spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
How do they become ours, mine, yours? Verses 4 through 6 for today, they become ours through the past blessing of election. Verse 4, just as, notice the connecting there. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just as, this is connecting us into it, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him and love. To the degree that, or in as much as, what are these spiritual blessings? They are his mighty hand of salvation to sinners. He chose us. Rejoice in that, Christian. He chose us. He chose me. That's what Lindsay says all the time. There's a small level of truth to it. He chose us. That is something to be thrilled about. He has selected us. Who? Us. Who's Paul writing to? The faithful saints. We can say it. He's chosen us. When did he do that? Before even the foundation of the world. Before Genesis 1. He was there. He was existing in perfect harmony. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Didn't need us. Chose us. Before the foundation of the world, before creation of the cosmos, the universe, the world system and its people. Stott says, before time began into a past eternity in which only God himself existed in the perfection of his being, the purpose concerned Christ and us. If I may quote someone local, Kevin Vaughn from the Calvary Chapel Men's Retreat, 2016. I took notes, buddy. He said, if I can do an impression, no. The riches of the blessing of salvation for sinners and their lives being transformed into the image of Christ are truths which have been planned since before the foundation of the earth. Our election in Christ Jesus is not some sort of afterthought historically it's a resolve that goes way back before there was any eternity before creation and Paul is overwhelmed by this now a little bit of our flesh rears up at this point and begins to say Rory as you're talking this are you telling me that I didn't decide for Christ that at that time I didn't decide for Christ yes you did but you would have never decided for Christ if he hadn't first decided for you. And when I say a he, I mean the Father, having decided for you in Christ Jesus. How do we reconcile this? Eternal, sovereign election of God before there was ever anything, only himself, and then a response on man's end? Some sort of action of man? How do we reconcile this? Some people say, here's what you do. You believe either in the sovereignty of God and reject the notion of man's responsibility or you propound man's responsibility and completely disregard the biblical thing we've just read of God's sovereignty. Well, then some would say, no, that's a bad idea. I disagree with that entirely. What you actually do is sort of believe in God's sovereignty and sort of believe in man's responsibility. That's not biblical either. So what do we do? Fully Believe in the sovereignty of God in choosing, in election, in predestination. 
and fully believe that man has a role to respond to that grace. It's not either or. It's and both. We believe both of these things because we are taught them in the word. Entirely, not partially. Charles Spurgeon was asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And he said, I don't reconcile them. You don't need to reconcile friends. They're friends. Douglas Moo, who wrote the book on Romans, besides Paul, it was a different book I'm talking about, said, we need perhaps to be more cautious in our formulations and to insist on the absolute criticality and meaningfulness of the human decision to believe. At the same time, we rightly make God's choosing of us ultimately basic. Such a double emphasis may strain the boundaries of logic. It does not, I trust, break them. Or remain unsatisfyingly complex, but it may have the virtue of reflecting Scripture's own balanced perspective. C.S. Lewis said, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are two pillars of faith that reach up into the heavens and somewhere join together before the throne of God. In his commentary on Romans, John Stott wrote, Many mysteries surround the doctrine of election, and theologians are unwise to systemize in such a way that no puzzles, enigmas, or loose ends are left. At the same time, election is a doctrine taught by Jesus himself. I know those whom I have chosen. And then here in our Ephesians, Stott says, Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election. And we should beware of any who try to systematize it too precisely or rigidly. It is not likely that we shall discover a simple solution to a problem which has baffled the best brains of Christendom for centuries. That's helpful as we study these deep things of God. That the answer is found in God himself. In an antimony. Eric Alexander, well-respected pastor, says that the doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. It's right there in the Bible. It is difficult, but it's also profitable. He said, embracing the doctrine of election is not then to become for us a banner under which we march, nor a bomb to be dropped on people, but rather it is a bastion or a stronghold for our souls. When we bow down in the amazing awareness of the fact that we are who we are in Christ Jesus, because before the dawn of time, he set his affection upon his son. There's nothing to be afraid of in that. That he has chosen us. And why has he chosen us? Not because you're tall, rugged, and handsome, or because you've got a brain that can memorize the whole book of James, or because you're American because you vote Republican or don't vote Republican, whatever. He tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I have chose you. I have set my love on you because I love you. Well, that's not very helpful. I loved you because I loved you. Grace. Unmerited, unearned favor in Christ Jesus. That was spoken to Israel. It's spoken to us as well in Christ. 
As Jesus says, I have sheep which are not of that fold that I must bring. And when the uh, gospel went out to the Gentiles, it was said that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Peter tells us that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. I don't know what that means. (laughs) Sorry. I looked it up in the Greek and the word itself is prognosis. (laughs) That's a little bit helpful. But he was there. And he knows, and he knows those who are his. He has called, he has chosen, and he has elected according to his foreknowledge. Romans tells us the same thing. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love good, who love God. That's one of our favorite memory verses, and we totally like butcher it. Don't you know, buddy, all things work together for good. Not entirely. It goes on. It's to those who love God. And it goes on. To those who are the called. According to his purpose. It goes on. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. These whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Paul says in Acts, known to God from all eternity are all his works. He knows. Now let's break up here. The word foreknew, or to know beforehand. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, speaking of election rather, says it's God's plan to bring salvation to his people and his world. The doctrine of election is at once one of the most central and one of the most misunderstood teachings of the Bible. It, at its most basic level, refers to the purpose or plan of God, whereby he is determined to affect his will. Thus, election encompasses the entire range of divine activity from creation, God's decision to bring the world into being out of nothing, to the end times, making anew of heaven and earth. The word election itself is derived from the Greek word eklagomai, which means literally to choose something for oneself. This in turn corresponds to the Hebrew word bachar. The objects of divine selection are the elect ones, a concept found with increasing frequency in the latter writings in the Old Testament and many places in the New Testament. The Bible also uses the words choose, predestinate, foreordain, determine, and call to indicate that God has entered into a special relationship with certain individuals and groups through whom he has decided to fulfill his purpose within the history of salvation. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. No, I don't know. You're like, I checked out after the word Holman's Illustrated Bible Dictionary because I didn't see any illustrations up there. I'm right there with you. What is the first thing we see which is a purpose of our choosing in verse 4? It's so that we should be holy. That we should exist in a place of being set apart and dedicated for our holy God. And that in that we should be without blame, without defect, without spot, blameless, innocent. Those who understand election, predestination, take sin seriously. We've not been chosen because we're holy. We've been chosen because he's going to make us holy. 
Now there's something wrong when a belief in the electing love of God results in a declaration that I can live however I want because God has chosen me. Now there's some truth to love Jesus and do whatever you want because as you love Jesus, you're going to be following him. But there's some error in because I've been chosen from, the, from eternity, doesn't matter how I live. I'm just going to go ahead and live in blatant, outright debauchery, fornication, immorality, and he'll sort it out in the end. We see it a purpose of our choosing is that we would be moved towards lives that are holy, that are lived for him. Holiness is the purpose of our election, the first that we read. And it also, ultimately, is an evidence of our election. Be very careful when you ask the question, do you believe once saved, always saved? And when I say be careful, I mean behind your question or what you really asking is, is it cool that I keep fornicating? Is it cool that I'm getting drunk multiple times a week? Is it cool that there is absolutely no obedience to the holy word of God and what he's calling me to in light of what he's done for me and his son, Jesus Christ? Is that cool? There's something wrong. We have been chosen in his grace and love from before there was even an Adam and Eve and a beautiful garden and giraffes and zebras and stuff. We've been chosen with love for holiness. Unless somehow we don't get there by the end of the day, reiterate, to the praise of his glorious grace. And for you to just live however you want with some sort of banner of once saved, always saved, it doesn't matter. There's something wrong. There's a cancer. There's a heart issue. And you need to come and bow your knee before the throne of God and say, what's going on when I ask that question? Because the question can be flawed. So, why do we trumpet election? Why do we trumpet predestination? Because it leads us to holiness. We don't trumpet it so that we can have some sort of corner market on a theological understanding. We trumpet it because it leads us to holy living. Why do I love the imminent return of Jesus and talking about the rapture? Not so I can go up to my amillennialist friends or mid-trib friends and say, in your face, I just dropped a bomb on you proving now there's a pre-trib rapture, yo. No, it's because John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, everyone who has the hope of this return purifies himself just as he is pure. Whatever our debate may be, why are we trumpeting it? It will lead to holiness. It will lead to the advancement of the gospel. It will lead to the praise of his glorious grace. I know our clock says 45 minutes, but I'm wondering if it just never got started. <laughs> and start now! You think I'm joking, but... <laughs> yeah, brother! Ephesians 2.10, by grace you have been saved not of works, lest any man should boast. You know it. It goes right on to say, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for holy living, that he's prepared beforehand for us that we should walk in them. Thessalonians tells us that God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Colossians says, hey, as the elect of God, put on 
tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it teaches us to deny ungodly and worldly lusts so that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Salvation has appeared. He has chosen. He has called so that we can shine like lights in this world over a crooked and perverse generation. Verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. We have a past blessing of election by the Father, and now we have a present blessing of adoption by the Son. He's predestined us. Don't cringe at the word. Say it. Rejoice in it. You who are saints, rejoice in it. Easton's Bible Dictionary says, this word, predestined, properly used, is only in reference to God's plan or purpose of salvation. The Greek word, predestinate, is found in Acts 4, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 2, and Ephesians 1, and in all of these cases has the same meaning, the eternal, sovereign, immutable, and unconditional decree or determinate purpose of God's governing of all events. Charles Hodge said, rightly understood, this doctrine number one exalts the majesty and absolute sovereignty of God while it illustrates the riches of his free grace and just displeasure with sin. Secondly, it enforces upon us the essential truth that salvation is entirely of grace. That no one can either complain if passed over or boast himself if saved. Thirdly, it brings the inquirer to absolute self-despair and the cordial embrace of the free offer of Christ. And fourth, in the case of the believer who has the witness in himself, this doctrine at once deepens his humility and elevates his confidence in the full assurance of hope. Once saved, always saved. You can have an elevated confidence and full assurance of your faith because he has predestined. And those who he's foreknown, these who's who he, these his who's he's predestined. And those who he has predestined. What's it, Romans 8, 28, 29. These he's also, end link of the golden chain, glorified. Predestined and glorified. We have an assurance, brothers and sisters, because he has had the plan from the beginning. And what does an assurance do? Praise your glorious grace. Praise your glorious grace. We have been ordained, preordained to what? Don't miss this. Don't check out. It's to adoption as sons. Preordained to adoption as sons. My friend Adam Poole, who's the director of the School of Ministry in Corvallis, I get to say he's Dr. Adam Poole now. He coined this term that I love that election is a family language. You notice I keep saying, you saints here. You saints, let's rejoice in election. Because we have been predestined to be adopted as sons. We are part of the family. Let's rejoice in that. A family language. Martin Luther said, predestination is a wonderfully sweet thing for those who have the Spirit. John chapter 1 verse 12. Reminding us that we've been predestined as sons and daughters. I'll throw that in there for you gals. How rude. Romans, or John 1.12. I think this is on our bulletin board or whatever that thing's called. Put a pin in it. It says, but as, it's not up there, so just listen. Listen. 
Are you listening? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so here we see this, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, respondability, or man's role. As many as receive, there is a receiving, there is a believing. As many as are there, to them he gave a right. He gave it. He is sovereign over it. Those people were born not of their own will, hunkering down, pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps, but overarching it, the will of God. You remember earlier I said that this is, this is more than a paradox. This is, and I'm probably saying it wrong, an antimony? Antimony? Either way? Nobody knows? Okay. What is an antimony, you ask? I don't know. But Stott does. He says, it's abundantly clear the scripture's emphasis on God's sovereignty never diminishes our responsibility. Instead, the two lie side by side in an antinomy. Sorry, I don't use that word every day, but I'll start. Which is an apparent contradiction between two truths. Unlike a paradox, an antinomy... not deliberately manufactured, it is forced upon us by the facts themselves. We do not invent it and we cannot explain it, nor is there any way to get rid of it, save by falsifying the very facts that led us to it. A good example is found in the teaching of Jesus who declared both that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and that you refuse to come to me to have life. Why do people not come to Jesus, Stock continues? Is it that they cannot, or is it they will not? The only answer which is compatible with his own teaching is both, even though we cannot reconcile them. And so what we have are like two cogs in a wheel that seem to be turning different directions, but they all work to the same end. In closing out, having the worship team come on up, remember verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the spirit of promise. We can take great comfort in the electing predestinating, foreknowing purposes of God that are according to his will. I almost called this chapter the according chapter because it just keeps saying according to his plan, according to his will, according and according, different thing, I guess, according to his will. And also a belief in the same context in his gospel. Push yourselves back in your story. Think of when you were born again. Think of that day. And then push back farther. And push back farther and farther in your story. When the waitress handed you the track or the guy on the beach was witnessing to you or the guy on a horse next to you or whatever it might have been, you're there in the welding shop, you know, you're there uh, you know, at the library and someone starts talking to you about Jesus. And you, your mom, there. My wife, I think, was saved in the bathtub you know, and her mom was preaching the gospel to her. You know? Sorry. <laughs> you go wherever your story begins and realize it goes farther back, farther back, farther back. I'm amazed. I wrote a newspaper article last week. I'm doing family research, and I just found out that, like, my great-grandpa back in the 1700s, that he was the first preacher of a church in Tennessee. 
and that he was saved under a guy named Shubal Stearns, who was saved under George Whitfield's preaching. And he was sent out by George Whitfield, Shubal Stearns was, to lead the great awakening of the South. And that my great-grandpa, Titus Lane, preaching the gospel, went and led a group of frontiersmen to fight the British in the Battle of King's Mountain with the Overmountain Men. And they're making a movie about it right now, and he's the lead guy in the movie. And I'm like, what? You know, this is all like within the last couple months. I'm blown away. But I have to believe that this man, Titus Lane, who was part of this great awakening of the South and bringing the gospel into Tennessee, who had, uh, I think, nine kids who also went out and planted churches, who also were patriots, who prayed for this new nation, I have to believe that Titus Lane was a man of prayer, who in starting a new nation, prayed for his sons and his son's sons and his son's son's sons, that they would be men of God, men of integrity, men who would lead people in the gospel of Jesus, who would stand up for truth and righteousness as we pray for our children. And that here, some 200 and something years later, there's a dude with a drop of that blood preaching the gospel. And so it's cool for me to be able to go back, I don't even know, but this story goes back to the 1700s and, and a heritage of godly men who, who had a passion for the commission. But it goes farther. And you might not have one of those testimonies. You're like, man, I was like, I had a bunch of drug dealers and man, I had, like, my dad was in prison my whole life. And you have a story. Just keep going back. And we all will go back to before the dawn of creation. We're a God who loved us before we even knew he was there. Set his sights on us and called us to be holy, to be adopted as sons and daughters. And as we're going to get into in the following weeks, to have an inheritance, to be sealed as a guarantee with the spirit, to have assurance, all to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's stand together. Let the saints here rejoice. Let the saints here bless his name. Blessed be God. Praise you, Lord. We worship you. We are overwhelmed with a truth that just boggles our minds that you knew us before we knew you. You thought of us before the world came to be. You thought of Rory. You thought of Adam, you thought of Johnny and Easy and Marcy and Erica and Jess. Those who are saints in this room, you thought of us by name. Choosing and electing, predestining. We are overwhelmed in wonder and awe. We praise your glorious grace to us, Lord. We would have never made a decision for you. A decision that resulted in the right to become sons and daughters of God. If you hadn't first decided for us. We wouldn't have come to you if the Father wouldn't have had, hadn't first drawn us to Jesus. We wouldn't have lives of holiness and the power of the Holy Spirit if the Spirit hadn't first convicted us of sin and righteousness and the judgment of God. You initiated God and we give you glory and credit right now. Salvation belongs to our God. 
And to the Lord belongs forgiveness of sins. We give you glory. We worship you. And we pray that you would put such a love for these gracious truths in our hearts that we would live holy lives. Holy lives of speech. Lord, that no longer would we have corrupt words proceeding from our mouth. Lord, that our bodies that are now temples of the Holy Spirit would not be joined to harlots, would not be used for fornication, that we would present our bodies as instruments of righteousness to God as a worship to you, Lord. That we would not have deceit found in our mouths. We would be men and women of integrity and blamelessness. And we repent today where there's blamefulness in our life. We are to be blamed for what is happening. And continuing in that may very well be what shows that we are not saved. And it would be your good, wonderful compassion and pity today, Lord, to convict us of that sin and to lead us into repentance, God, that we could walk in what you've purposed for us. We are your workmanship, God. And we want our lives to be glorifying to you. All of these wonderful truths are to the praise of your glorious grace. We're going to sing in just a second. As the saints, we're going to sing a chorus of worship and praise and thanksgiving for the sovereignty of God in salvation. But we also give opportunity right here, right now, for you who are non-believers, non-Christians, not born again, Sinners who came into this room this morning to find a friend. Oh, such a friend who loved you before you knew him. And today he would draw you with cords of love and bind you to him. He wants to twine himself around your heart with ties that nothing can sever that you would be his, that he would be yours forever and ever. Don't even think to yourself right now, well, I don't even know if I'm elect. Or I really want to come today, Rory, but I'm just not elect, so I can't. That's a caricature of your own mind. As you stand right now, you read on the door of eternity whosoever will. That's what you read right now. If you're a non-believer walking into this church, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And today, if you would believe in him, you will not perish. You will have the promise of an everlasting life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And as he adopts you as sons and daughters, you'll turn around and you'll look on the backside of that door and you'll see that for you, chosen from the foundation of the world, Will you enter in with us today? Will you sing this song, the song of the saints? If you sing it with us today, you need to know that you're being called to repent of your sins. You need to know that you're being called to holiness and a holy life. Granted, you're not holy now, but he will make you holy. Turn from your sins. 
and let him clothe you with robes of righteousness. Let him sign the adoption papers today in his own blood, making you a son or a daughter and walk into this glorious path of life that he has for his saints whom he's elected. We pray, God, that this would just inform the way we live, that we would respond to your glorious grace and love. We would have joy. We would have assurance. We would rejoice. We would worship. We would witness. And Lord, we would witness to those people that would seem the hardest people that would never turn to you. Because we trust, God, that you have called from before the foundations of the earth. And our job is just to preach it. We would have trust in you in that. And Lord, as D.L. Moody said, we pray that you would save the elect and that you would elect some more. Lord, that you would cause us to be bold evangelists in this community. And Lord, for those that seem the hardest, we would trust your sovereign hand to soften We believe, God, that you've made us ambassadors for you to preach to this world in Prineville and to the nations, to implore them to be reconciled to God. And so let us go do that, trusting in your sovereign purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.